finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. This is a podcast where we read things, we talk about those things, what we have read. Uh, Andrea is my mom. She's also a librarian. I'm not my mom, and I'm not a librarian. I did work in a library briefly for my mom. Uh, but, is, but you're a writer. Uh, I guess, yes, yes, technically. You can. You might find some of the things I have written on this very podcast feed. and But I won't tell you where. It's up to you to figure out the mystery, adventurer. Uh, Challenge accepted. Look in the cortex. So, uh... <laughs> We read um, we read two stories for this episode, prose stories. For those who don't know, we alternate prose and comic books, and we read. Uh, two you should co- have said prose and comms. Prose and comms, <laughs> I guess. But then I think people wouldn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> it's true. Uh, so we read two Conan the Barbarian stories written by Robert E. Howard. Uh, we read Rogues in the House. And the Frost Giant's daughter. It was my first time reading any Conan, so I'm definitely going to mom it up in, in this conversation because I have lots of questions. Sure. About the world's most famous barbarian. I, he probably is, I suppose. Uh, they, well, so do you think you're going to have more questions or less questions than when we were reading Swamp Thing and Crisis on Infinite Earths happened? I think I I have a better understanding culturally about Conan because the character of Conan is very popular even today. So I kind of understand who Conan is, mm-hmm. but I haven't actually read any of the stories. So I'm just going by like what I know about Conan from the movie and other things. Yeah. It's weird to think now, though, that since we put out that episode where we talked about Crisis on Infinite Earths, there's been a major television event that has served as an adaptation of that very story i know it's well you have an uncanny knack for when you think of something it immediately becomes like a media sensation yeah well the the most dramatic one was when we uh decided to do dark harvest and like literally the next day they announced a movie yeah um there's something like that recently what just happened like that we were talking we were doing some oh we were talking about klaus and then netflix made a klaus tv series yeah no what i mean like there was something like in the past week but i can't remember what it was now well we were talking about the possibility of doing a roll of doll story and then the next day netflix announced that they were doing a series oh yes that's true yeah we will, well, not going to spoil it. At some point in the future, we're going to cover a Raoul Dahl story because we're addicted to having to qualify our enjoyment of things based on the words and actions of the writer. Right. Well, I mean, it sounds like we just sit down and we just start talking about things, but we actually do do some very mild planning in the future. Yeah. So, so let's talk about Robert E. Howard. Sure. So he was born... A big chungus. Okay. Sorry. That's the most important thing to get out of the way first. This boy, he was big. (laughs) Okay. So he was born in 1906 and he died in 1936. He was only 30 years old when he took his own life. Kind of making my big chungus joke feel 
kind of <laughs> in poor taste now. But yeah, Sorry. he died tragically young, yes. So he was most known as being an American short story writer and also the creator of many characters, including his most famous Conan the Barbarian. Mm-hmm. So he mostly writes pulp fiction. He mostly writes in the 1930s. He publishes stories in pulp magazines like Weird Tales and a lot of oddly specific genre magazines, which Nate will talk about because one of them is his favorite type of genre magazine, the sporting genre magazine. Well, that was the thing. There was these pulp. There was this explosion of pulp magazines, which would publish short stories um, for the consumption. Largely, I mean, they were very much like comic books, I think. By and large, these were targeted at young men, you know, who now had free time because they weren't working in the mines so much or whatever, I guess. I guess, yeah. It's the birth I mean, there were other... Also, there there were other pulp magazines that had, like, that were focused on romance and other subjects that did target... Uh, women, but like especially the ones Howard was publishing and were targeted at young men, and there was just a ton of them. They covered all sorts of different genres. Uh, Howard's sporting stuff was mostly focused on boxing, but like I think we've mentioned on the podcast, I recently read through the short run of an entirely basketball-focused pulp magazine. Was it from the 1930s? I think so. Well, there you go. So. Howard is also considered the father of the sword and sorcery genre, which is the subgenre of the fantasy, the bigger fantasy genre. Yeah. So he gets that title based on his creation of Conan and other sort of Viking and Scottish themed warriors that he creates throughout his career. But I guess this genre is considered low fantasy. And this is one of the things I wanted to ask you before we get into the story and more about Howard. What's the difference between low and high fantasy? Uh, I think it's mostly a question of scope and scale. So, like, the quintessential example of, like, a high fantasy story is The Lord of the Rings, which is about a massive war for the fate of this world. And there's, like, a demonic overlord that controls a whole nation and the entire of existence is in the balance whereas a sword and sorcery story is largely about one character's personal battles and the things that are stake are mostly that guy's life conan has like one-on-one fights he struggles against a clear uh villain that's threatening him directly and he's not so much fighting for the fate of the whole world or a nation or whatever okay that makes sense It's also, like, high fantasy tends to focus on, like, noble characters or, like, honorable characters. A lot of sword and sorcery, or what you might term as low fantasy, is more concerned with, like, dirtbags and the like. Conan is, like, a thief and a sellsword. He's not, like, a knight. That makes sense. Yeah, that really makes sense. So even though he died relatively young, um, I guess we should stop for a minute and we should talk a little bit about, um, maybe put in a trigger warning that Howard had a complicated um, life. He had mental health issues that were untreated. 
He had um, societal issues. He had lots of issues dealing with authority. Um, he had complicated family life. He had to deal with bullies in his mm -hmm. life. And all these sort of influenced the creation of Conan. Yeah. So, I mean, he had a really sad and tragic life. And I think it affected... I mean, even though he is known for writing these stories that are um, on the surface really like... I mean, Conan appears to be this sort of happy-go-lucky warrior going from adventurer to adventure, but there's this sort of underlying current that is a reflection of Howard's mental health and his life that he led. Well, yeah, he is... I mean, I think it's pretty well known at this point that he was in the... Uh, he was friends with H.P. Lovecraft. They were in that sort of circle together with, like, Clark Ashton Smith and August Derleth. Where they would all send letters to each other, and I, one of the things that he has in common with Lovecraft is he has a pretty low opinion of humanity. And I think one of the big differences between him and Lovecraft is, for Howard, that extends to a pretty low opinion of the idea of civilization in general. Yeah, I think it's very clear how he feels about society in a lot of this writing. That's interesting that you brought up the whole thing about this sort of circle that he was in involving Lovecraft and the other writers. Um, it's like often described as like a literary group or like a conclave, but do you think that it's actually like a literary movement, almost like the Beats? Uh, I th yeah, I think so. I mean, they were all sort of writing for the same magazines and writing around in the same genres and they would encourage each other to like work in other genres they would incorporate elements and references to each other's work into their writing and i think that's a that's a big part of how why we have this idea of the cthulhu mythos now because other writers that were contemporaneous with lovecraft and were in communication with him would write stories in the mythos or incorporate mythos elements into their stories so yeah I, I think it would be i think you'd be hard pressed to argue that it's not some sort of a literary movement and they're essentially they're essentially like these real like uh pioneers and popularizers of weird fiction yeah that's what i, I was thinking exactly that because it's also i mean they're kind of like the equivalent of, like, the pulp detective writers. I mean, they're kind of writing yeah. in a very specific genre, even though there's subgenres and different styles of writing in. They're sort of the genesis of that sort of action horror meets science fiction, like you said, weird sci-fi. And I think that's sort of... We talked a lot about this, and we continue to talk a lot about about these sort of outliers to literary movements who aren't appreciated for their output and for their influence until the next generation of writers comes along. Yeah. So even, like, commercially, they were all very successful. They didn't have this sort of critical acknowledgement of the base of work that they were creating. Because, I mean, we talk about Howard, and we'll talk about him more he created one of the iconic characters. And we talk a lot about characters that come out of the body of work that they are and stand alone. And the character itself is an influence on other writers. And I think Conan is one of those identifiable 
characters that grows out of the movement that Howard is working in, but also is his literary legacy. Sure, yeah. So I think, like, I mean, I don't think at the time that he was writing, people realized the sort of outlying work that he was doing. I mean, you think about things like, we talk about the Game of Thrones series, we talk about The Witcher. There's lots of series that would not exist if there wasn't a character in the past like Conan. Game of Thrones essentially has like, okay, here's the main continent where the story's taking place and it's like England. It's like the, you know, the United Kingdom, Isle of Britain, whatever you want to call it. And then it's like, across the sea is just... Conan land. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's like, <laughs> that is like high fantasy plus low fantasy put them together because yeah. you have the high elements with the whole thing, that, the political machinations of Westeros. And then you also have like the Dothraki and all of those. They're kind of like the Conan elements, like you said. I mean, so much then, so that Jason Momoa got cast as Conan off of being in Game of Thrones, I think. Yeah, but let's let's get back to the influences that Howard has that leads him to the creation of Conan. So Howard is interested in history. He lives in the Midwest. The Southwest. The Southwest. And he's interested in American history. He has, I don't know if it's explicit, but I feel like he does have like an interest in Native American culture. He's definitely interested in Viking culture, in he in Scottish history, in the Picts, which I think is a direct influence on Conan. But he also is interested in um, societies that he feels are less complicated than modern society, and I think he, that's why he looks what he considers the primitive, which yeah. probably today would be like early human history. Yeah, he. Uh... Yeah, like I said, he doesn't really like civilization very much. So his his uh, his dad was like a doctor, right? Yeah. But he uh, was a victim of he of like I've always seen it character characterized as like he invested in get rich quick schemes, which I just think he was like a serial mark for con men. Well, I think at the time that he, I mean, it's like you know, it's right around the stock market crash and heading into the Great Depression. And it's kind of one of those things where being like a traveling doctor or being a country doctor wasn't a really sort of a career where you could earn a lot of money. Yeah. So he's often traveling around and doing these different things. He had a sickly mother who had a terrible relationship with her husband and that affected Howard. And I think the father, in his like quest to get rich quick, kept bankrupting the family. And I think that's why they were always on hard times. Because there was a part of his childhood where he was raised like in a boarding home. Yeah. And at some point, he lived away from the father. And at some point, he lived with other family members. He basically has the backstory that L. Ron Hubbard lied and said he had. Yeah, yeah. But so I, they traveled from, like, oil boom town to oil boom town. There's, like, a part in his writing, in, like, one of his letters, I think to Lovecraft, actually, where he's like, uh, yeah, like, if you want to make somebody lose their faith in humanity, send them to an oil boom. Yeah. Uh, so, like, I, he, I, that that creates, like, an interesting thing where, where it's, like, he keeps going to quiet towns that suddenly become incredibly active. Well, and he sort of views that activity as a negative, like, 
invasion, like this, like invasion of his otherwise peaceful life. Yeah, and I think you see that a lot in his writing when he like this sort of um, all of the towns are kind of like these towns where they're they're like. But like boom town, yeah, exactly. Like you know, they're filled with prostitutes and money lenders and shady people, and so they're kind of like, you know, a depiction of what he grew up with. I mean, like functionally, Conan is not terribly different from like a Western hero, from someone like the Man with No Name or whatever. And he is a he's a gun for hire who wanders from town to town, and when he comes to these towns, he there is like inevitably some kind of you know, trumped up minor functionary who's going to give him trouble. I mean, that's essentially the plot of Rogues in the House is that there's two of those guys feuding with each other and Conan gets caught in the middle. Well, let's talk a little bit about what Conan is because he is... Rad. Super rad. I think that's the term you're <laughs> yes, looking for. exactly. Let me but check I my think... notes. It says Conan rules. Yes, Yes, but the S is that, like, weird oh, the, skateboarder S yeah, that people yeah. make. The cool S. Yes, of course. But just looking at him with a quick eye, he is just a male stereotype. He's what Howard perceived a strong male protector to be. Yes. Because we knew that um, in his past, Howard had a problem with being bullied and his response to being bullied was to make himself very strong. He took mm-hmm. up um, boxing. He took up all these sort of male strength-building activities. And then you see his character of Conan, who is strong beyond any imaginable strength. I mean, in the Frost, the Frost Giant's Daughter, he slays 80 Vikings. And then he's, you know, he's the only survivor. So he has yeah. this... That's like, the way that Conan works is he is always stronger than any other human he is in contact with. But when he fights something inhuman, like a monster or whatever, he is weaker than that thing, usually. And so, like, so that's how he is, like, when he's fighting normal dudes is this unstoppable whirlwind of destruction. But then the real stakes come in when he has to fight something that is not human, be it a giant snake or a caveman, or a giant. Or, we'll not tell you, but there's a twist yeah. to one of the stories. Um, so, yeah, so he takes almost like the way of like a southern gothic story. He takes a story and he adds elements of like history and mysticism and sorcery. I guess not spiritualism and religion specifically, but he does add this sort of element that, like, is a little bit weird. Yeah. And I think that's what he gets to be known for. Well, he definitely has, I also think, in addition to his opinion on civilization, a pretty dim opinion of religion. Lots of times when religious figures show up in Conan stories, they are antagonists. They're either subservient to some broader inhuman power, or they're just manipulative charlatans. And, like, Conan himself has a god, Krom, but Conan doesn't really, like, worship Krom. Krom is, in a way, a kind of cosmic reflection of Conan. Krom is not interested in, like, grace or mercy or even rewarding his followers. But if you piss Krom off, you're fucked. Yeah. And it's the same thing with Conan. Conan is, like, 
He's not really here to like help for comfort you or to make a deal with you even really. But if you make him angry, he will split your head open. But then also he'll split your head open, but he's also constantly helping people. Even if he inadvertently helps them. So, he has like a fondness for like the underdog yes. or the persecuted or the you know mistreated in some way. Conan has like a very he's like got a low honor to him. Like low in the like you know, like like a low cunning, you might say. In that he, he kills and he steals and he does both those things for money, but he doesn't lie and he doesn't manipulate people and he is outraged by people that do do those things. I think what Conan reminds me of is sort of like if he was in a, like a Western story, he would be like that like gun for hire that has a really high moral code. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. He's like the man with no name, like he, or like Boba Fett. <laughs> like he's like that kind of character. Uh, I was gonna say something. He's a, he's also a lot like a Ronin. Yeah, exactly. But I think it's interesting because I guess that's kind of how he was created. He was kind of like a repurposed character that was like brought into like a different genre and kind of. Howard took the idea of Conan and kind of forced him into a short story that he had already written, reworked it, and it became a Conan story. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing with Conan is, like, compared to other fantasy figures, like, Conan is deeply American. Like, there's, like, a very frontier sort of thing to him. He was, like, inspired by looking out at the misty hills in, like, the Southwest to, to create this character. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because all of the things that Howard likes, Conan likes. And all of the things that Howard hates, Conan hates. Yeah, he's then, not as direct a stand-in for Howard as some of Howard's other characters are. But yeah, you're, you're not wrong. But I also think, I mean, to, to give Howard credit, he not only created an iconic character, but he created sort of this massive world that Conan lives in. Because he created the land... The Hyboria. The Hyboria, yes. He created the whole universe. And then he created the land that Conan com comes from. And that land is almost as, it's almost like... It's like a genus loci. It is a, a location and it's a character in the stories as much as Conan is. And then not only does he create this sort of Samaria where Conan comes from... He creates all the lands around that land where Conan travels to. Because, I mean, he goes up to visit the the Vikings and he goes all over, you know, to mm -hmm. what the would... Stygian coast. Yeah. I mean, could be like the Middle East. And then at one point, I don't know, I just read about it, but there is like maybe a part where there's a Conan story that exists where he was in the United States at one point. Well, yeah. I mean, in America. It wouldn't be the United States. But yeah. It's because the the Hyborian Age, which is sort of the collective name for this setting, is this sort of patchwork of historical influences, so that he could sort of get all of his interests into one setting and into one story, so he could write about like, you know, when he's because if you look at some of his other characters he's created, he has stories that are you know like are set in the Middle East. He has stories that are set in the frontier and are set in various different historical. Periods and there's kind of stand-ins for all of those different places and ideas inside the Hyborian Age. Yeah, I think what's interesting 
it's almost like the world of Westeros. It's a sort of mm-hmm. pseudo historical world where there are some elements that are related to the interests that Howard had. He was very interested in um, the Vikings and Scottish history, but he was also interested in Greek mythology mm-hmm. and Norse mythology. And I think there was even he. He constantly referred to his bullfinch, his bullfinch's mythology, which was a huge influence on him. Yeah. Which I think is a huge influence on a lot of people who, especially who write fantasy or create these sort of alternative worlds, because it has sort of like a religious iconography that can be sort of adapted to any kind of slant. And I think that's what Howard does. Sure. Yeah, I agree. But I think it's interesting because I was reading about him and I think this was something that was slightly going to cause sort of a conflict between you and I when we were talking about Conan was that I was saying that he he was lazy and he wanted to write historical fiction but he was too lazy to do the historical research. So he created this character where he could sort of create the historical elements that he knew without doing too much research. Here's my take. Uh, research blows. It sucks. <laughs> The people that do do extensive historical research for their writing do it because they're rich enough to hire assistants. Um, or they get paid to be writers so they don't have to worry yeah. about paying the bills. He was they're... working as a soda jerk. <laughs> the head soda jerk while all this was happening. And he was, it was t- he was working as a soda jerk so much it made him physically ill at one point. <laughs> I did like that component about uh, the high... Stakes world of soda jerking. <laughs> yeah, and he worked a ton of random jobs here and there. He had struggles with authority, uh, which I can relate to as a, someone who uh, is a bad employee. <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, I don't necessarily think it was laziness because he was writing a ton. Yeah, and he was publishing a ton of stories, and he uh, had, uh, in his letters and stuff always framed it as. It wasn't so much that he was too lazy. It was just that he wasn't going to have time to do the research and do his job and publish, write all the stories he needed to write. I mean, that's the same thing. He wrote a ton of poetry and at one point just stopped writing poetry because he was like, this is writing I can't make money off of and I can't afford to write things that I can't make money off of. Well, yeah, I think that's true. Even at the height of his popularity, he, I mean, he did talk a little bit about this, like in this sort of aborted memoir that he wrote about the nature of publishing at the time mm-hmm. where you were paid upon publication. Yeah, so he's always so like he, behind. Yeah, so he was selling stories and he was getting popularity and magazines were publishing him, but there was such a delay between the time that he wrote the story and when he got paid. You know, because I mean the whole time that he was writing, he was he lived at home or he was dependent in some way on his family until he achieved the height of his success. Yeah, he also had to take care of his mom because she was terminally ill. Right. Uh, you know, and eventually she she died, and we, we mentioned it before, but, like, the way that he died was when his mother died, he, like, the day after, shot himself in the head. Yeah, well, I mean, emotionally he was very connected to good or bad to his family, and I think that affected him yeah, and he clearly, clearly had problems connecting with people outside. He had one long-term relationship with uh, Novaline Price, which eventually just sort of like quietly ended. She went away to graduate school and they never talked again. Yeah, and I kind of feel like 
she I got the impression from that relationship that she not took advantage of him, but maybe just used him. I don't know. I don't know if I feel the same way, but like I think she maybe just expected him to be something he wasn't. Like there's like the quote where she she supposedly when she first met him because they were introduced through a mutual friend. She was like, "That guy's a writer." He don't look like a writer. He's not dressed like a writer, which I take to mean he was probably wearing jeans <laughs> when, they, when she met him, and maybe a big belt buckle. Uh, maybe she was expecting John Steinbeck. Maybe, but I think they just like—I don't know—they just never linked together. I remember reading that like they both at different points like proposed marriage, but neither of them were into the idea of getting married at the same time. I don't know. So, let's talk about the first Conan story. It was a recycled Cole story. So, who is Cole? Cole is like a pre-Conan-y Conan character. He's not quite as complex as Conan is. He's like the king of Atlantis or something. Uh, they eventually... I, I haven't really read any Cole stuff. They did eventually make a movie about him where I think Kevin Sorbo played him, which... That's unfortunate. Every time I was reading about it, I kept thinking it was Kroll. Yeah. Like, he didn't create that no, character. No, no. He didn't have anything to do with Kroll. Though I'm sure there's a Conan, there's an influence from his writing on Kroll. Uh, but no. He didn't, he did not create Kroll. Yeah, Kroll is, he's, he's not, he's similar to Conan, but he's like, he's more of a high status character generally. And in that first Conan story, he is more high status. Like, the premise of that story is like, this barbarian, has become a king in this civilized nation and he is like got this internal conflict and then there's like a more like a, a more supernatural story with this like with some religious elements and then after that pretty much every Conan story is a prequel to that story oh okay that's sort of the late the latest one with him you know old and basically retired at that point so it's almost like a hero's journey where he's recounting his adventures and all of the stories that he tells. Yeah. Which could kind of kind of excuse the sort of boastfulness of the stories. Uh, sure, I guess. I like that, the boastfulness. I like that he is this, like, unstoppable thing. I want to talk a little bit about, like, Conan as compared to other... Because you talked about the, him transcending the stories and becoming this sort of, like, literary or cultural icon. And I think the thing is, Conan's one of those characters like Sherlock Holmes and like uh, Dracula or Captain Ahab, where they've gone from just being a character to being an archetype. Exactly. Where there's like tons of characters in fiction that are basically that character, or like some kind of twist on that character. And I think the thing that separates Conan from, like there's lots of characters that are people trying to do their Conan. There's a ton of them. And they're almost all bad. And they're almost all bad because they don't notice the sort of nuances in Conan. They create a character that's just kind of a, a hedonistic lunkhead. Whereas, like, I think the most telling thing about Conan is there's this quote from, I believe it is in the, that first Conan story, The Phoenix on the Sword, uh, where Howard describes Conan as a man of gigantic mirth and gigantic melancholy. Like, there's a sadness to Conan, there's a loneliness to Conan. He's, like, 
like I said, there's that that idea that for everything he is, he's like not like a manipulator. He has like a mild sense of justice, and like the thing that I think the thing that drives Conan forward in all these stories, like the underlying motivation, is that Conan like can't stay happy. Well, yeah, I think that's why. I mean, part of his aesthetic is he's constantly moving from place to place. Yeah. And that sort of implies that there's dissatisfaction or that he's searching for some kind of higher purpose. Yeah. I think one of the problems that I have, but this might just be culturally at the time that Howard is written, there's two things that kind of annoy me a little bit about Conan. And I think first is the sort of casual racism that is sort of implied. You know, there's like... Certain races are like moneylenders, and then there's this sort of um, casual like sexism as well, where women are sort of either they're like femme fatales that are driving Conan off, you know, his task, or they're doing really bad things, and Conan has to punish them. Well, there's also the ones that are just like innocent damsels that he has to protect. Yes. Uh, yeah, I agree. That's not great. There's and there, no- there's the, there's some of the. It's not as bad as some contemporaneous writers, the racism thing, specifically. Like, I think it is, like, there are some stereotyping, like, if you want to be like, oh, okay, well, like, what do these guys stand in for, and, like, what does it mean that they're playing this specific role? But I, I think it's less uh, malicious than a lot of other people. Yeah, and I, don't, I, mean, I don't think he goes as far as, like, say, Lovecraft with the, like specific character naming and things like that yeah but i think like that's why i actually not to give him a pass but i would consider it more like casual racism where it was sort of culturally accepted that but, you know like yeah this this particular race is a very shady money lender and this particular race is the, you know i think like he sort of uses that as a quick quick way for people to know the like motives of people yeah, I mean, he's like, if you're from Stygia, you're like a bad dude. Like, that's that's how it goes. But at least they're not real life races, which is good. Yeah. There's really never, like, a really strong female character. Well, there's Belit, the queen of the Black Coast. Uh, but that's kind of its own thing. I mean, most of the t- characters in a Conan story are, there's Conan, there's the snivelly uh, functionary slash evil priest slash sorcerer that he has to kill. And like, then maybe there's one or two people that are like in the way to add some stakes to the story. Yeah, but like, let's just briefly end up this conversation about Howard specifically by talking about his legacy, sure. which I think is important to note the value and his contribution to the literary world. Yeah. So not only does he create this his own subgenre but he really helps to move apart and validate the sort of importance of the fantasy genre yeah and i think even though he's writing in pulp he brings that to the forefront because his his stories become incredibly popular so more people start reading his work they start reading these pulp magazines they start reading this genre which is almost like a gateway to larger to longer form um writing in the same subgenre yeah, yeah. It's weird to think about him in the place of the kind of history of fantasy as a genre because, like, this stuff predates Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Right? Which feels weird because so much, it almost, the arc that most people follow is, like, they read Lord of the Rings 
and then they go and they read Conan and this other stuff. And they're reading that as a reaction to Lord of the Rings and the, like, its oppressive influence over the fantasy genre. But they're, they're, those, it wasn't written as a reaction. You know, it's like a predecessor. Yeah, but I think maybe the fact that Conan existed and the people who grew up reading Conan were primed and ready for something like The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And I think that's interesting. I think it's also important to note, like we talked about, his characters. I mean, not only Conan, he creates a bunch of other characters. Yes, Solomon Kane uh, is the other like most famous one at this point. Uh, but yeah, he's great. great. He, I mean, he wrote a shit ton of stories in the short time that he was writing across a bunch of different genres. You know, horror, westerns... And, just regular adventure stories, boxing stories, I all think sorts also, of stuff. I think also it's he should be noted for, like I talked about the world building and the genus loci. It's really hard to build a consistent world just using short stories. Sure, yeah. Because every short story has only a limited amount of time that you can get people up to speed on what's going on. And I think he's really good at that. Yeah. So, you know, once you start reading a Conan story, you're pretty quickly, even if you've never read a Conan story before, you're caught up in what Conan is and what his world is like. And I think that's kind of hard to do in a short story, especially like a sort of a genre short story. We talk a lot about it, like trying to create worlds where you're talking about the money and how things work. And This you know, is very much not a we know how the money works kind of setting. Right. But we know what Conan's world is like. Yeah. Because it's very it's very cleverly written in a way that you can get up to speed. No matter what, where you start reading these stories. Because we read one that was very early and then we read one in, that's from the middle of the mm-hmm. cycle. And they're both easy to understand like the world that Conan exists in. I think that's really cleverly done and that should be acknowledged. Sure. And like you said, the influence that he's had on the fantasy genre and... He pretty much brought to light and created this sort of male, complicated male protector, which is like, a, you know, a character that's always used in fantasy and a lot of times used in science fiction. Yeah, we, before the podcast talked about like, you know, I said there's a lot of characters that are basically Conan in the sense of like, they're also guys with swords who are walking around in a loincloth, uh, chopping people in half. But there's lots of other characters across all of pop culture that have a ton of Conan's DNA in them. Like, I think well, like Wolverine owes a lot to Conan the Barbarian. I also, I mean, I was thinking about, I mean, especially because Jim Butcher is getting ready to release a new book, but I think, like, Harry Dresden, his character that he created mm-hmm. in his series is a lot like Conan. Yeah, the Hellboy, too. I mean, yeah, there's lots of characters that are heavily, and then lots of writers that are actively and heavily influenced by the work of Howard, which I think is not something to sort of dismiss, even though he's technically considered a pulp writer. I mean, I think he is a pulp writer. I I think, like, it's clear, like, you can read his work and you can read other, I mean, like, you mentioned before the podcast, you were talking about Hemingway, and they're, they're both, like, interested in these ideas of masculinity, and those... Like, early Hemingway stuff is coming out at the same time as Howard's. And you can definitely read it and see and feel the difference between, like, those works. But I don't think that that, like, 
disqualifies Howard's pulp stuff from being like talked about and considered seriously. I could definitely see Hemingway like reading a copy of Weird Tales like in a bar, having like his pina colada and just you know what I mean? Sure, yeah, yeah. Like in between his love of you know watching boxing matches, he probably read. I think it would Steve Costigan, boxing sailor, you know, like that. Yeah, I would. Yeah, probably. Honestly, you're. Right. I don't know what the if any of that stuff made it out to France, but like, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if if at some point Hemingway had read some of Howard's writing. Yeah, I, I mean, come on, like that kind of stuff had to be like. I mean, there was like one of them was called like Spicy Adventures, yeah, and it was uh, like uh-huh. all like. Uh, early proto romance. It's like softcore porn. <laughs> yeah, stuff. but I mean, it had to do with like sailing, like you know. So come on, he had to. Yeah, yeah. He had one of those rolled up in his rucksack, and yeah. You know, so I'm sure. Uh, yeah. So let's talk about which one do you want to talk uh, about? I guess first? we could talk about the Frost Giant's daughter because it's like it's the earlier one in Conan's life. It's also the earlier one in the, like terms of real world chronology too it was one of the first conan stories that howard wrote it didn't get published immediately well he wrote it in 1932 and it was rejected so in 1934 he reworked it to be a non-conan story called gods of the north that he published in 1934 and then in the 1950s in 1953 it was republished in an anthology in its original format Mm mm-hmm so that's when it became, went back to being a Conan story. Because that was a kind of typical thing that Howard would do was he would submit a story, it would be rejected, he would look at what's popular going in the publishing world and he would rewrite the story to sort of mimic the trend that was popular to try to get more things published. Oh, yeah. That's how that actually reminds me of a thing I wanted to talk about before we get into this story, which is I think that somebody who's writing now can learn a lot from looking at Howard's life and his writing because I feel like there's probably a lot of overlap in terms of him writing around the time of the Great Depression and the like and somebody trying to make a living as a writer in 2020. I think you were, you had made a joke, but I think you were actually spot on where you said that Howard is like the king of the gig economy because he was hustling his stories I mean, he was working with a lot of magazines. He was writing a lot of quick stories. He was mm-hmm. publishing. He he was con. I mean, aside from the work of writing the stories, he was also actively and intensely self-promoting himself. Yeah, and he was like largely self-taught. He like studied a lot of other writing and tried to work it into his writing. And I don't think he had an agent. I think he was doing he it. He did eventually get an agent. It was another pulp writer. He did eventually work with an agent, but I think he had... That was almost like towards the end of his life. So let's talk about The Frost Giant's Daughter. It takes place in what Howard calls Nordheim, which I guess is sort of north of where Samaria is, and it's a kind of colder, Viking-inspired country. Yeah, it's the ice level. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so, you know, Conan's slipping and sliding around a lot. Uh, you got to be really careful on those I jumps. I imagine he has, like, fur tied around his legs and, you know, kind of just... So he is, in this story, very clearly a mercenary. 
Yeah, which he often is. So he's working with, I guess they're called the Vasir. He's working with the Aesir against the Vanir. So one of the things we didn't mention when we were talking about his constructed setting of Hyboria is it's kind of got this like, it's in the ancient forgotten past and the things that happened in Hyboria, you know, are eventually interpreted as mythology by later men. So I think he's getting at this idea here is that the Aesir and the Vanir are two of the kinds of Norse gods that would fight each other and then eventually be sort of like their pantheons would be entwined. And I think the idea is that this like struggle that Conan has stumbled into between these people, the Aesir and the Vanir, will eventually be interpreted uh, as legend by later inhabitants of Nordheim who will be the Norsemen. And I think that's sort of what sort of end like lends sort of like a legitimacy. Like it does seem more historical because there is this sort of it could kind of be true kind of feeling about it. So Conan's in this battle and it opens with him having defeated 80 warriors and he's the only one left alive and he's weak and he's sort of No, it is four score warriors just so you can get a little taste of what Howard's writing style is like. Yes, so he he is found on this bloody battlefield, the lone survivor, and he's visited by this vision of this beautiful Norse maiden who's covered with this veil that is made from this otherworldly fabric that he has never seen before. Yeah. And she visits him in in his time of being completely exhausted, but yeah, very manly because he just defeated four score warriors. Yeah, she just starts making fun of him. Yes, and then so then she kind of has this like she mocks him, which is kind of okay, like we see that Howard is being is Writing Conan to be mocked by this beautiful woman because he's sort of inept socially, Conan. And he gets worked up and he starts chasing her through the frozen meadow in the battlefield to try to catch her. Yeah, and then she calls upon Ymir, her, yeah. her father, who is another figure from Norse mythology. Ymir is like uh, the progenitor of the giants. Right, and it turns out that she is in fact, her name is Atali... And she is the princess, the daughter of Ymir. And earlier in the story, when they're talking about the battle, someone evokes Ymir as like a god of battle. Like these, some, one of these men of Nordheim like basically prays to him. And another guy's like, hey, be careful. You don't want to throw his name around lightly and attract his attention. Which is another like Howard thing of the idea of like the gods, if the gods exist, you maybe should be more scared of them than reverential. Right. Right. Which is like a very, like, it's a, like a, I don't know how to describe it. It's like, it's similar to the idea that Lovecraft would take to the extreme with the gods in the Cthulhu mythos. Yes, yes. So, she works him up. She mocks him. She um, judges his masculinity and his prowess on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. And she sort of triggers him into trying to capture her. And then when she gets him where she wants, she reveals her brothers, who are the Frost Giants. And they start fighting. This is another thing. So even though he's exhausted from his battle and chasing this mysterious veil-covered maiden, 
he immediately has to start another battle where he's fighting these two frost giants. So, so then as he like is fighting them, he defeats both of them, and then right when he's about to claim his prize of the frost maiden, she calls upon her father, who sends a lightning bolt, and she disappears. Mm-hmm. And then later on, his I was going to say colleagues, but they're more like comrades, Yeah, show up and they're like, what are you doing sleeping on the battlefield? And he kind of wakes up and thinks it might have been a dream, but in this sort of supernatural element, he's holding the veil from the maiden. Yeah, and one of the guys who finds him talks about how, like, she appears before dying warriors and lures them away so that her brothers can kill them and sacrifice them to their father. Right. Right. Lay their heart on Ymir's board, I think is the thing, the way that the dude puts it. But once again, Con- uh, Conan has bested. Yes. He has defeated the Frost Giants, he has defeated the Maiden, and he has tricked the god so that yeah. he survives. And he gets a veil in return, which I don't think ever comes up again. It's not well, like a thing that he uses later. Well, that's what I was going to say. Does it have sort of like a supernatural power? But I guess if it doesn't come up. I mean, it probably does have some sort of supernatural power. It just doesn't come up. And it's not, there's not a ton of that, like, hard continuity in these stories. But I think it's interesting because it really takes sort of, like, Norse and Viking mythology and combines it with this sort of supernatural element. And then, I mean, this isn't a clear example of Conan protecting or or defending anyone. It's kind of like... He it's almost like a cautionary tale where he learns his lesson about chasing beautiful maidens, but I don't know if he ever. He really... doesn't really learn that lesson. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's also like an inversion of the myth of Daphne and Apollo. Yeah, but whereas it's... like she's the bad guy in this one. Yeah, but I kind of I think it's kind of reversed. But I think it says a lot about Howard's view of women. I think it says a lot of you know about like this sort of entrapment that he might have felt from women yeah so yeah i think so it doesn't have the best attitude towards women i mean there's there's like two characters in the story and one is a trickster siren so yeah but that's a recurring theme there's this strong forceful woman that tricks conan all the time well yeah i mean in the same way like like it conan is like drawing on this tradition of like mythical heroes too and like that happens to a lot of them. I mean, you look at, like, Hercules and Hera. But I also think it's kind of like... So when his comrades show up, and they're like... He's like, meh, battle's done. I, I defeated everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't need to worry. I took care of that part. Yeah. Plus, this weird thing happened to me, and I got this veil. Yeah, and I killed a giant. Yeah, so then he's like, I gotta warm myself up with some hearty ale or whatever to kind of shake off the frozen part of Conan. Yeah. Why did you pick this one? Uh, I wanted to pick Rogues in the House because it's one of my favorite stories and I was trying to think of another story and I remembered that I had read a collection. I had read a public, like a thing, a book that was from the 70s that was like Rogues in the House and this story. And I was like, well, somebody decided to put them together so let's go with that. Also, I think it's, it's like I said, it's like a, or one of the you know, it covers the sort of the history of these stories. Like this is from the early period when he and Rogues in the House is like considered like one of the the better stories from the middle period. I w- I want to kind of walk back a little bit on my opinion that 
there is some type of sexism in these Conan. There is. There is. There absolutely is. You don't need to walk back that But opinion. I think also, there's also a sort of, this idea like that these women are besting Conan because they're smarter and they're cunning and they're confident. Yeah. And I think that sort of says something about a type. There's like two types of women in these stories. Mm-hmm. There's definitely like the service industry women, the, you know, the serving wenches and the hardy, you know, women of the street or whatever. But then there's these sort of strong, like warrior women that are kind of con- like he Conan is obviously attracted to these strong women that like treat him like he's a buffoon and he. Yeah pursues them and he's and he's always getting bested by them and i think that even though maybe howard was seeing that as like a predatory woman i think Mm. that also reflects in a little bit of a way that howard thought that there were women who were cunning and confident and smart and he wrote those women into his story they don't always have a happy ending yeah but they're still there sure sure i can see that i mean they're queens they're you know they're goddesses they're princesses he sort of has these high roles for women. They're not fleshed out characters. The false, the frost daughter is not. Yeah, well, I mean, this is a pretty short story too. There's not like a thought. Nobody's really terribly fleshed out. I mean, like we know about Conan from other stories, but like if you were just going off of this story, all you'd really know about him is that he's tough and horny sometimes. <laughs> well, I also think he has a sort of a history of like unrequited love or like. Well, yeah, that's chances. The thing. He's constantly dissatisfied. Like, yeah. that's what I was talking about. The, like, Conan can't stay happy, so he has to keep moving. Like, he never really gets what he wants, ever. And he doesn't even really seem to know what he wants. But it's whatever it is, it's not what he has currently. Well, I think he's kind of like a shark. If he would stop, you know, if it was like Conan settles down and opens a bar, I mean, that could be a different genre of stories, yeah. but it wouldn't be as fulfilling as, like... You know, I mean, he's trusty. Does he have the same sword through the whole... Not really. I mean, it's like, I guess he does. There's not really a ton of, like, mythology around Conan's sword. It's not like Excalibur or Stormbringer or anything. He just uses whatever weapons at hand most of the time. Well, yeah, because a lot of the stories, he's, like, killing people with, like, um, you know, the next story, he uses two unorthodox methods to murder something yeah. or someone. So well, that's a thing that I always really... This is real, getting real nerdy. Uh, but uh, there's a tabletop role-playing game called Dungeon World that's like an attempt to take the sort of style. It, it acknowledges this idea that Dungeons & Dragons has essentially become a genre more than a specific game. And that's like, how can we do a Dungeons & Dragons style story using some different roles? And in Dungeon World, the, um, the damage die... That your character uses. Like when your character does damage, you roll a specific die. And it's the same no matter what weapon you're using. And it gets at this idea that like the fighter should be just as deadly with a sword as he is with like a boulder he picks up off of the ground or like a dinosaur bone or whatever. Right. And like that feels very Conan to me, the idea that like, oh, you knocked my sword out of my hand. Well, I'm just going to pick up this like, I'm going to rip the sign off of the the roof of this bar and i'm gonna beat you to death with that then yes but i think the second story rogues in the house is more of what i think of when i think of like conan that was one of my favorite ones of all time so rogues in the house takes place later in conan's uh life he's traveled down south he's in this i believe unnamed city i don't think we learned the name of the city 
No, I don't think I don't think he ever actually mentions it. And he's made like he has at the point that the story starts, he's made a bit of a name for himself here as a like a sellsword and a, like a mercenary and a hitman or whatever. And he has gotten himself arrested. He's killed this priest that's been acting as a criminal in the maze, which is this the like the hood essentially in this city and he is in prison waiting to be executed because he got after he killed the priest he got drunk and went to bed with a prostitute and she ratted him out and while all of this is happening there is a power struggle going on between uh Marillo who's like a he's like a clerk or something like he he's like a a guy with mid-level municipal power in the city and Nabonidus, the red priest and Nabonidus has killed one of Marilla's associates to send him a message about like their, their feud. And so Marilla gets the idea to bust Conan out of prison and hire him to kill Nabonidus. And so he visits Conan and gets him some food, like a, like a big joint of meat and arranges for him to have his chains taken off but after he leaves, they change the guard, which foils Marillo's plan to emancipate Conan, but which then leads for, to Marillo to try and kill Nabonidus himself, and he gets stuck in Nabonidus's uh, basement. But when the new guard shows up, uh, it doesn't matter that the guards have been changed because Conan takes the bone from the meat he was eating and splits the guy's head open with it and escapes into the night. And then he shows up, and he finds the prostitute that ratted him out. He kills the man she's with, and then lifts her up and drops her in a cesspit. Right. And then he decides that he's going to go do that job for Marillo, because he doesn't really want to be in the city anymore. And one of the things that Marillo promised was he would get him out of the city. Right. And so he goes to Nabonidus' house, and he also gets stuck in the basement. And it turns out that Nabonidus is there in the basement as well, uh... The basement is a maze, and the house is filled with traps. Yes. Which is another component that Conan has to deal with. Yeah, another huge influence on, like, D&D. So, Conan shows up, and Marilla is like, I was gonna, I didn't think you were gonna be able to break out of prison, so I was gonna kill Nabonidus myself. But then I got in there, and he showed up, and he was like a monster, with, like, fangs and claws and covered in hair. And Conan goes... He was a werewolf, I say. Obviously, <laughs> a werewolf. And then uh, <laughs> Nabonidus shows up and is like, I'm also stuck in my basement maze. And Conan's like, quick, kill him before he turns into a wolf. <laughs> and he's like, no, I'm not a werewolf. And so what actually happened is that Nabonidus had abducted from the jungles a primitive humanoid, essentially a caveman. He literally says, like, given time, his, his race will evolve into humans. So like a Neanderthal uh, named Thak. And he was using him as a servant. And then at some point, because he feared, I guess, assassination at the hands of Marillo or whoever Marillo would hire, he got the caveman to put on his cloak and impersonate him. But because he was more human than animal, there was a devious streak in Thak. And he deposed... 
Nabonidus and took control of his home and locked him in the basement maze. Right. And now um, he is killing anyone that comes into the tower. At one point, uh, some other dudes that Marillo hired, I think. The, the, the nationalists, he calls them. Oh, yeah. There's other enemies of Nabonidus show up. And Nabonidus has set up this like primitive surveillance system in his home. From periscopes. Which uses a, 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 a giant mirror with a bunch of periscopes <laughs> pointing at it so that he can look at everything in his house. Essentially, he has like a, a periscope-based CCTV system. Why isn't this a movie? I don't know. I don't know. It's been a comic several times. So they wash Nebonitis, uh, Marillo, and Conan, who are the titular rogues in the house, watch uh, through the mirror periscope network as Thak uses a deadly pollen yes. to kill the nationalists. And then uh, they bust out of the maze... And Conan has a titanic struggle against this inhuman monster, but also, tragically, too human. Uh, and he kills Thak, and then he throws a chair at Nabonidus' head and kills him, too. Yes. <laughs> and then he's like, okay, I'm going to leave the city now. Give me some gold and let me leave. Right, you're all a bunch of doofuses. And like the whole thing is, like, Conan condemns Nabonidus and Marillo, because he's like, you guys are, are just as, like... Bad as I am. Like, you, you do as much stealing and killing as I do. But you pretend like you're good guys. And that's why you're bad. Like, he, that's that, that, like, low honor thing. Is that, like, he has no pretensions about being, like, a great man worthy of praise. Or, like, he, he's on the side of, like, right or serving anything except his own desires. But these guys have all of these pretensions that make them worse than him. He serves them up a truth salad that they have to... To eat. And it's like there there are these two representatives. It's like this story is very clearly like Howard working through his his anger at society in general because it's like a priest and a politician and then this criminal gets stuck in the house together and the criminal is the better man than the both of them. And there's also this idea that like Thack is like an animal, but the thing that makes him bad that drives him to do the villainous actions he takes in this story is the part of him that's human. Yeah, I think, I mean, also it's kind of, a, you know, a comment on the global um, politics that were happening at the time in the mid-30s. Yeah. So. There's also this, like, edge of satire where it's, like, the, the, the red priest who is ostensibly important in the city is literally replaced by a caveman in a cloak and nobody <laughs> notices. Well, this is, like, this is what I was thinking. This has what I think of when I think of Conan. It has this sort of comedic element yeah it's a sort of like gallows humor yeah kind of thing yeah that's like an important part of conan and that's right here in this that's right well this is a lot of why a big part of why this is my one of my favorite conan stories if not my favorite is you can describe it as a a, a uh, gorilla decides it's a wizard and almost kills a bunch of people well that's what it's like it starts out like Conan is he's pretty comfortable in the prison. He's not concerned that he's about to be executed. He's not really he's just kind of like chilling in the prison. He kind of Well, the thing is like if they take him to get executed, he'll just like knee the executioner in the nards and like <laughs> jump off the 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 platform and run away. Like you're not going to kill Conan. 
So he just like, I mean, he's coming off this sort of uh, binge, this lost weekend, and he's holed up with a prostitute after committing this um, crime. And it's kind of, Howard makes it seem like it's almost justified because he's a corrupt priest who's a fence. So Conan has these shady business deals with him that go a fail and he kills mm. the priest. And then he's drunk and bragging about it at the tavern and his... Well, lady friend, who he thinks is his lady friend, but she's obviously just a prostitute, turns him in to make a profit, and he ends up in prison. Yeah, but I also think like the pre like story, con- excuse me, the pre like story conflict between Conan and this priest in the maze is like a re- also supposed to reflect the conflict between Nabonidus and Marillo, where but like Conan handles his thing directly. But that's what it is. It's like Marillo. Decides he wants to hire Conan, who has a reputation as like a, like you said, a sellsword or a mercenary for hire. And it's kind of like funny because he's like, yeah, I'll do it. I need three things. I need Mm -hmm. a bag of gold, some beer, and a big old roast beef. Yeah. (laughs) And then when the guard shows up and he's looking in there, he's, he's not... He's upset that the that Conan isn't tied up like yeah. he's supposed to be, but that he's also enjoying like a huge roast beef dinner. Yeah, yeah. And then he, that's what kind of starts the problem. He goes in there and he's like, "What are you doing?" It's <laughs> like when you if you were like, "Hey, you saw your dog chewing something," and you're like, "Hey, what? You, get that out of your mouth!" But then the dog took it out of his mouth and split your head open with it. <laughs> yeah. So I mean that, and then he kind of casually walks out of the prison, and at first he's like. Oh, I was supposed to do that job, but fuck it. I got some other work I want to do first. And then he goes to visit the prostitute. And then instead of punishing her in, like, a really bad way, he kills the boyfriend. Yeah. And then he just throws her in the cesspit. And then she's kind of like, what are you doing? And then he just walks off because he's like, he don't want too much heat. And yeah. then as he's leaving, he's like, well, fuck it. I might as well just do this job. Yeah. I mean, I already got my roast beef. Yeah. So, I, and then he shows up and it's kind of like... But it's like the idea that like Marilla and Nabonides can't solve their problems directly and they engage in this like shadow war and that causes all of the problems in the story. If they had just dealt with it directly, then there wouldn't have been any chance for a gorilla to steal his identity <laughs> and his house. Yeah. So then he was like, I can't believe I'm stuck here with you two assholes. Yeah. Plus I'm in a trapped house. Plus there's poison pollen. Plus there's like an ape that's on a rampage that's dressed like a man. Yeah. And then I so I got to fight him. I got to fight you guys, and I got to deal with getting out of mm-hmm. here. And then for a second, he thinks he might have to fight a werewolf. Right? <laughs> yeah, that was also very funny. But I think it's like it's set up like in this way, like where he's forced to do things. Like, yeah. Like once he goes underground, and he realizes he can't get back out the way that he came, mm-hmm. and then he has to deal with these two stupid guys who are kind of like really afraid and then one guy said don't go up there he's a crazed animal yeah it's very strange it's also like there's a funny thing where everybody that meets the thack the ape can't tell what he is initially like the other guys show up the ones that he kills with the pollen and they think he's like a demon and conan thinks he's thinks it's a werewolf and then nemonites has to be like no you fucking idiots i got him out of the jungle but that's like another thing it's like it has, like, all these components of, like, an action. I mean, there's trap doors, and then there's monsters, and there's political machinations, and mazes, and po- there's, like, a pit of poison that, like, he's, yeah. like, 
uh, the one, what is his name, Nabonidus threatens to put them all in. And then at the end, he's kind of like, he's like evil super villain, like an evil super villain where mm-hmm. he's like, he stands there and he like tells like Conan this complicated story of his revenge and Conan just hits him on the head with a stool. Like, he that's just enough. He fucks a stool <laughs> at his head and kills him. Like, uh, if he didn't spend like three pages like doing this monologue of like his evil plan to take over the city state, he probably would have just been able to walk out of there. But, yeah. And then Conan doesn't kill him because he's evil. He kills him because he bores him. Yeah. And that's kind of like, that's that's so Conan. Also, like, he's interacted with him and he's judged that he doesn't have, he doesn't, this guy doesn't deserve any leeway. But then also it has a whole bunch of, like, nameless, like, like in, the, in, like, an action movie, they would be, like, the nameless thugs that come and they just have to constantly fight them. Like, this gang of naturalists just show up. Also, in this weird circumstance where there's the ape and the political machinations and the pit of, like, poison and the, the weird toxic pollen that you can only release with certain levers. Yeah, and it, like, comes out of, like, a wooden flower. <laughs> yeah. It's great. It rules. This whole thing's like, totally rules. Um, I think it's interesting talking about, like, the political machinations. Uh, it's, like, one of the earliest stories that Coward tried to get published was I think it's called the, the God in the Pool or something The God in the Bowl which is like a, a longer story that has a lot of like that political stuff intrigue stuff going on in it and it got rejected and the kind of the lesson he learns from that is like he keeps that element in a lot of Conan stories like there's lot, still lots of like schemers and backstabbers but because the stories are about Conan who doesn't not interested in doing any of that stuff it never becomes like in the foreground but he never loses those themes well that's what i was talking about this sort of is really kind of clear to me that there's this sort of um conan has this like disdain of like intellectuals like yeah and i think he's kind of like i'm just an ordinary guy who has the strength of 80 men and i can fight an ape Mm-hmm. But I do not want to listen to you, like, talk about Marxism. Like, I just want to hit you on the head with a stool. Like, that's yeah. what he's going to do. But I think, like, that's, like, part of what's appealing about Conan. is this idea that, like, the world Conan inhabits is a reflection of our world. Where these, just these dickheads with too much power who are subservient, a lot of times subservient to malicious forces uh, beyond our control... And Conan represents this, like, fantasy of a guy who can just be like, shut up, and, like, punch your head off. <laughs> like, don't you, I just, like, you You read Conan, and you're like, yeah, man, this is great. I wish Conan could show up and, like, pile drive Mitch McConnell <laughs> into a trash pit so hard his head explodes. That would be great. And, like, that's what's fun about Conan. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's what the intellectual stand-in is. But I like how it's kind of like, on the surface, it's like an action story. Like, it has all the components of an action story, even like this heroic character that, like, saves the day in the end. Because even though these two guys are, like, shit, mm-hmm. Conan still saves them. He yeah. kills one later, but he's, you know, ostensibly saves them from the... the he also ape. potentially saves lots of future people 
and like mailmen or whatever who might accidentally <laughs> wander in the house and get killed by this ape. So like that's good too. Yeah, so he's doing like a public service at this point. It's a danger to have an ape in the death trap house, especially if he controls it. Yeah, right. And especially since no one actually knows what an ape is. Yeah, no, they're all very confused when they see it. But I like that. Um, also, I guess we should note that the cover for this from Weird Tales is like sort of the classic cover of Conan fighting the ape. I think that's a later one. A later one. I think that's the um, that's the Frazetta painting yes, for the yeah. 70s one. Yeah, and it's a great like uh, action like snapshot of like Conan like up in the air with his sword and like the red cape. That Thrak is wearing is like swirling around the both of them. Yeah, and I think that kind of sets the sort of the the sort of idolized version of Conan that people have in their minds. But I think though, I mean, even though on the surface, like I was saying, it's an action story and every element is action, action, action. Mm-hmm. It's like almost like a Jacobean revenge. Yeah, story. I've heard some people compare that to this too. And I think that's what it is. It almost has that feel of like a traditional sort of revenge kind of moral story. And I think that kind of makes it a little more sophisticated than what it originally appears to be, which is this sort of Conan fights an ape. Yeah, like so. he just fights an ape in a house. But I think it also, it kind of reveals like Howard's like view on like, like you said, political corruption and this sort of this kind of cult of like political importance because both of these men feel very important very self-important and they kind of both of them at some point are like you just don't understand how valuable i am to the city state and then Mm. conan's like i don't care yeah i'm gonna throw a chair at your head yes yeah i don't even need my sword to kill you but that's what i'm saying i mean he's like he does all kinds of like things. He throws a. How does he kill the boyfriend with a knife? Yeah, I think he just stabs he, him. He picks a dagger up off he the has floor a, or something. No, wait. It's in. It's in a. Frostrand's daughter, where he he picks up the poniard, right? Yeah. Because I remember that word kept getting said over and over again. That's not that's not in Rogues on the House though. So he kills. Well, he's no, like, I think he does. He has like a knife, a dagger or something. I mean, doesn't matter. He kills. Thrak. I think he he might have saved the dagger from when he was eating his roast beef. I don't remember. So he kills first. He kills the priest, so that's one, and then he kills the guard, that's number two, and then he kills the boyfriend, that's number three, and then he kills Thak. Thak, and he's number four, and then he kills Nabonidus. Nabonidus. Which is still not nearly as many people as he killed in the Frost Giant's Dog. <laughs> right. I believe it was four score. <laughs> yes. And then, like, two giants. But then he also had, may or may not have had a hand in killing some of these leftover uh, unnamed thugs, you know, the generic thugs that appear that he has to defeat. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of those. Oftentimes, we read a Conan story, and like a, a band of pirates will show up to threaten him, and he'll just like Cuisinart them. <laughs> so, but then he's kind of like, "I gotta leave here because you are all crazy, and I do not want to be involved in this. I need a simpler life of just being on the road as like a sellsword and just picking up odd jobs." Yeah. yeah. So, I was thinking a lot about like this sort of. 
even though it's meant to be sort of masculine, it's very masculine and it sort of has a strong, wily, street smart protector who's like slightly lusty and he's oftentimes not intellectual. He's very base and he kind of follows his instincts. It's kindly, like weirdly not very racy. And I don't know if that's of the time period or like Howard's inclination. Like he seems a little asexual, so maybe he didn't want. A, I mean, there's like a lot of implied, like you know, he had a lost weekend with the hooker, and he's very tired from all of his manly yeah. uh, endeavors. It's like kind of par for the course. There's just other ones that are more explicit, um, but I mean, like the main focus, the main interest of these stories is like on Conan doing cool stuff. And, like, killing people with swords and fighting monsters than it is on... But it's, like, yeah, in the background, he, like, bones down a fair amount. But it's never really at the forefront of the story. Just that sexy ladies like Conan. Yeah. And he respects them. LLCC, ladies like cool Conan. (laughs) Yeah. So, but I think, like... I think it's interesting. Like, we talked a lot in the beginning of the podcast about the the legacy of Conan. And I think that as a character, he's surprisingly complex. Yeah, that's what I was saying. Like, I think that's the thing that sets him apart from a lot of the lesser imitators is that he's not quite as straightforward as he initially seems. I think also, I mean, we didn't talk, we talked a lot about his male, his maleness, his masculinity, but I think that Conan also sets the precedent for this trend of like, male-centric literature and it's sort of having a you know because of this climate it's having like a resurgence in like books like brad Meltzer and like even like the bill o'reilly books where they're specifically about men besting other men and besting Mm -hmm. women because they're intellectual giants i think that's kind of like the bad legacy that comes out of like this type of pulp fiction and that good one is jack reacher (laughs) (laughs) my man (laughs) But I think of like I think of like people like Dan Brown and even like James Patterson where they're like this man is the only man who can save this yeah. world. But that's not exclusive to Conan. That's like all heroic literature ever that has been produced under the patriarchy. It's that same idea behind it. Yeah, but I think that I mean that's a good way to describe him, heroic literature because that's exactly what it is. I mean from Hercules the Greek mythology to like like you said, to like Jack Reacher, there's this whole trend of this male, alpha male, heroic figure that can only be the one who can save the world. Yeah. We were joking about going back to our old, the older episode where we talk about the Bill Clinton book, The President is Missing, and how like the president is the only one, even though there's like a whole climate of like these really advanced hackers the president the middle-aged president is the only one who can hack the computer like he's the only man smart enough to do the job and i think like in a way he's like a modern day conan like yeah except he uses 20 laptop computers to defeat the like terrorist instead of just one leg of lamb or whatever yeah all right do we have anything else to say about Conan? No. All right. So you don't have to be sad. I didn't say I didn't dislike Conan. Okay. I'm, I I I I understand. 
Nate was ready to fight me like that ape if I said anything bad yeah. about Conan. It's going to throw the, throw the microphone right at you. <laughs> Ruin the podcast <laughs> and my relationship with my mother. <laughs> and also our house is filled with traps now <laughs> because yeah. he was trying to catch me. So I can't even open up a door without worrying. But, okay, like, <laughs> did he invent the security camera in this movie? <laughs> I mean, in this story? Like, it's like the 30s, right? They don't have those. I was thinking, did he invent the evil villain Lair? Uh, I definitely think he at least had a huge influence on, on the, like, the death trap-laden villainous Lair. But I think he also, I guess we didn't mention this, but he goes into a lot of technical detail about these periscopes and how it works. Yeah. And how they have to spend an enormous amount of time watching this giant mirror. Yeah. So that they can observe this ape. Because mm-hmm. Conan does not believe that he is not a werewolf. Yeah. He's got to learn that firsthand. <laughs> so. But I like how his mind immediately goes to werewolf. Yeah, well, like, what? Would other people thought he was like, I mean, would your mind immediately, if someone said there's a crazed man who's killing people in a, like, death trap house, would you immediately think, oh, that's a werewolf? But they said he had fangs and fur. Mm-hmm. So, of course, he has to be a werewolf. And we know that, so, like, if they're operating under the assumption that he is Nabonidus, then obviously people have seen Nabonidus not have fangs and fur. And so if somebody sometimes has fangs and fur, then they're a werewolf. Right. It's the only logical conclusion. I think the only plot point that failed in that entire story was Murillo hires Conan to defeat Nabonidus, but then it's kind of just mentioned casually that in an unrelated charge, he's arrested. And that's why he can't escape very easily from the prison. Well, no, he's arrested before Murillo gets the idea to hire him. And then the reason he can't escape easily is because the, they changed the guard, so the guard that Murillo paid off is not in charge of him anymore. Which is why he has to kill the the rando guard with the, the bone. Yeah. So he's just essentially a red shirt. But I think it needed to be set up like that so that Conan would have a reason to go to Marilla, uh, to Nabonidus' house. And Marilla would have a reason to have gone there himself as well so they could both be in the house at the same time. I think the reason it was done that way was because Howard wanted someone to get killed with a leg of roast beef. Yeah, sure. That too. I'm sure. So... Are we good? Yes. Do you want to talk about what we're doing next? We're starting a new series. Yes, we are. We are finally getting back into an ongoing uh, comic book series, and it's not a Vertigo one, so that's a interesting change of pace from where we normally are. And um, we are going to do The Wicked and the Divine by Karen Gillan and Jamie McKelvey. And obviously, uh, for our next episode, we're going to cover the first volume, which I cannot remember what the subtitle of that is. What is the series about? I haven't read it. It is about uh, this cycle where, uh, well, I can just read the thing here. Every 90 years, 12 gods incarnate as human. They are loved. They are hated. In two years, they are dead. The team behind the critically, the team behind critically thermonuclear floor fillers, young Avengers and phonogram reunite to start an ongoing superhero fantasy. Welcome to the Wicked and the Divine, where the gods are the ultimate pop stars. But remember, just because you're immortal... Doesn't mean you're going to live forever. Oh, sounds interesting. I think this, the 
the superhero uh, descriptor is inaccurate in that synopsis, but otherwise, yeah, that's what the series is about. There's no link to a pre-existing No, it's world. entirely its Ooh. own. Well, I mean, there's a link to pre-existing mythology. Okay. But that's it. Interesting. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, me too. So, uh, spoiler alert, stay tuned. See ya.